Life or not life? That is the question. Or is it? This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. This may be the best conversation about astrobiology we've ever brought you. It stars no less than NASA's chief scientist, Jim Green, and the longtime leader of NASA's astrobiology program, Mary Wojtek. They are two authors of a recent article in Nature that calls for a comprehensive way to evaluate claims about possible life, to coin a phrase, across our solar system and beyond. And waiting for us at the other end is Bruce Betts, who has news of a solar eclipse and a prominent meteor shower. Check out the image of our warm, wet homeworld at the top of the November 26 downlink. Does it look familiar? If you're above a certain age, you'll recognize it from the cover of the Whole Earth Catalog. It's the 1967 photo taken by a NASA weather and communications satellite that Ariel Ekblom mentioned in last week's show. Below it are these headlines in our weekly newsletter. You've surely heard by now that DART, the double asteroid redirection test, got off to a great start on November 24th. We are now less than a year away from its deep impact on an asteroid called Dimorphos. There's an image of the night launch at planetary.org slash downlink. The mishap with the JWST at its ESA launch site in French Guiana did not cause any damage. NASA has pushed the earliest launch date back four days, though, to December 22nd. And Tiny Ingenuity, that spunky little helicopter that has made Mars its home, flew 116 meters in its 16th flight. The Whirlybird is returning to the Perseverance landing site to conduct more science. These are exciting times for space fans. For many of us at the Planetary Society, the most exciting prospect of all is the opportunity to discover that life is not limited to a single planet in the universe. That just seems so unlikely, doesn't it? My guests this week have been at the forefront of the search for decades. Jim Green has joined us many times, mostly during his previous job at NASA headquarters as director of the Planetary Sciences Division. After 12 years in that position, he was elevated to chief scientist in 2018. Jim is also deep into the fifth season of his great podcast, Gravity Assist. Mary Wojtek has led NASA's astrobiology program since 2008 as the Senior Scientist for Astrobiology in the Science Mission Directorate. She came to NASA from the U.S. Geological Survey, where she headed its Microbiology and Molecular Ecology Lab and serves on the board of the American Geophysical Union. She has worked in some of Earth's most extreme environments, ranging from deep-sea hydrothermal vents to Antarctica. Jim, Mary, and four other distinguished authors published their paper in Nature back in October. It's a sign of how sophisticated and comprehensive our search for life has become, and it made me want to invite them to join the conversation you're about to hear. Jim Green, Mary Wojtek, welcome to Planetary Radio. Congratulations on the publication of this paper, which a lot of us have been excited about at the Planetary Society, and which I think our listeners are going to love to hear about. Welcome to the show. Thanks Thank so much, Matt. I'm going to start somewhat obliquely, Mary, by asking you, since I just talked about your visits, you've made many of them to uh, some of our planet's most extreme environments. 
Was there any place you didn't find life? So far, no. Every place that I've gone and most places that people have gone, there's been life. It's amazing what life on Earth has evolved to take advantage of in terms of niches. So here's my my best Jeff Goldblum uh, impression. Life uh, um, uh, finds a way. (laughs) Was it always clear that what you were looking at was alive or evidence of past life? So I have not done work at looking at ancient life, and that is really a challenge. So in in my own experience, I've gone to extreme environments, but one of the reasons uh, I went to a particular area is because I already knew that there was life there. There was an expression. There was colored snow. Uh, so pigments are a really good clue that there's uh, yes, for pigments, not for my dog, but yes, colored snow um, or, or ice. And and so most of the places that I've gone, including when I was on a Jason cruise and looked at a hydrothermal vent system, this was an oasis of light in an air uh, of life in an area that was barren. My interest was to find out what it is that unified life in these environments as well as what, what allowed them to do things differently. There's some active life right behind you there. Yes, I'm sorry. My, my dog wants to be interviewed as well. And don't worry about that. It happens all the time. You could probably tell where I'm going here. The paper that was published October 27th in Nature begins with these lines. Our generation could realistically be the one to discover evidence of life beyond Earth. With this privilege, potential comes responsibility which, uh, pardon the additional pop culture reference, sounds like something Spider-Man's uncle would say. <laughs> or or Carl Sagan. You know, or, or Carl, Carl Sagan, Sagan, absolutely. Yeah, right. Oh, absolutely. Extraordinary claims, right? Yeah. Jim, was it, was it this sense of responsibility that drove you and Mary and four other authors to uh, the creation of what is suggested more or less as a prototype in this paper? In a way, I think uh, that did contribute to my state of mind. I have been uh, so enthralled with uh, what we've been doing and finding out about life in many different ways, you know, like what curiosity and perseverance have been doing. And those things are really exciting. We just continually get great little tidbits of indications of potential biosignatures that could be uh, related to life. Also the exoplanets, but the concept of you know being able to use remote sensing has its inherent problems associated with it. It's not like, as Mary said, go out in the field and uncover the rock, see something, and then recognize, oh, this is what I need to do. When you're doing the remote sensing, you got what you got. You know, if you're in space, you're going to be making a set of measurements, but but there's so many other things around that you need to know. For instance, in exoplanets, you know, I can anticipate somebody looking at an atmosphere of an Earth-sized planet sitting at the edge of a habitable zone, observing oxygen in the atmosphere, and then does the speculation lead to, well, that means there, there may be plant life on the surface taking that CO2 in and generating the oxygen, right? Well, in our own solar system, I can tell you what that planet is, and it's Venus, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so there's so many other things that you need. And so how can we help talk about 
to ourselves and then also to the public such sophisticated set of measurements and then develop the next steps, say what the next steps need to be and put them in the right context. That was always bothering me. And, and the, the scale does it. You know, as head of planetary for 12 years, we were constantly picking missions and really going over each and every instrument to make darn sure they were at the technology readiness level associated with their phase. And no one is going to get through a mission uh, proposal without uh, what we call a TRL, technology readiness level, of less than six. All right. You got to be six or forget it. That was such an important scale for me because I used it all the time throughout my planetary career. It just made sense of, could we possibly do that in this framework? And uh, indeed, um, uh, it started with a conversation between Mary and I and, and Daniela. It just exploded from there. We thought, hey, this is a good idea. Let's pursue it. Let's bring a couple of key other people in and, and really, really uh, take a look at it. Is that Daniela Scalise, one of yes. the co-authors? Yes. We have come so far, even though we have not certainly not conclusively, found evidence of life elsewhere. Not yet. But could what you have proposed in this paper, this scale, confidence of life detection, or cold scale, would we have been prepared to create it, let's say, 20 or 25 years ago? Or, or is a lot of this dependent on what has happened since then? Oh, absolutely. I don't think we could have done it back then. We could talk very you know, the, the, the SETI people, for example, have the Rio scale. And if you look at their scale, you know, it's, it's, it acknowledges that you need to verify and assess what you hear, you know, what you've, what you observed and stuff. But for us to apply something like that, we needed to learn a lot more about what life is, what kind of uh, impression it leaves on an environment or on a planet. When you're looking at an exoplanet, it, um, it has to be a planetary scale, uh, phenomenon for us to notice it if we're going to detect it remotely. And I would say over the years, we in astrobiology have have really learned from um, all the new things that we understand about, you know, 25 years ago, people were just starting to do molecular techniques and just sort of understanding the components of cells in a way that is meaningful and the relationship of organisms to each other phylogenetic uh, information that talks about evolution and, and knowing what we might be able to expect and learning more about uh, how to put things into context. I, I like to think about, uh, I once said in a, in a slide that astrobiology was 50 years of, of getting it wrong. And what I meant by that was we, we need to have some kind of certainty before we develop missions. We need to have some kind of uh, understanding. But our understanding has just been, you know, we put something forward and we make a measurement and it turns out that we measured something, but we can't really explain it because we learned something in biking, for example. We learned about the environment of Mars and the regolith and the effect that environment can have on the preservation of a biosignature. And that just you know, exploded into an area of research and understanding. With the Allen Hills meteorite, we suddenly understood that much like um, the adage about pornography in Congress, we'll know it when we see it, we were so certain we'd know life when we saw it. And it turned out, no, there's lots of things that that look like life that are produced abiotically. And, and honestly, the astrobiology program really 
blossomed or really exploded at that point with us realizing that studying non-life processes were just as important as studying life processes because it turns out that you know, for example, we talk about amino acids used to be the big thing to look for. Well, we know you can make amino acids without life. Uh, the meteorites show that you can get amino acids in materials that come from asteroids, and we don't think that there's life that's producing it. And so we needed very much to understand sort of the null hypo- the possibilities in the null hypothesis, which this is not life. And that has been what really what's been happening over the past 25 years, an increase in techniques and our understanding about life in general, even more importantly, our understanding of non-life processes. We should talk about this scale, which I want to make sure everybody understands because this is clear in the paper. This is just a proposal. It's a conversation starter, right? Because you're not saying this is being handed down from on high. There is a delightful cartoon that was released in the NASA press release that shows this long line of white-coated scientists building a ramp brick by brick, level by level. And right. I think we'll share it on this week's uh, episode page at planetary.org slash radio. Um, I, I think that's that's part of what this is about as well, right? It's not a single discovery or a single researcher or yeah. in- institution, Jim. Yeah. Going back to when I was head of planetary, had we got the scale, and let's say we're we're at a solid uh, you know, level three for methane. Here's where you know, we've gone with a rover and the rover has said, okay, the methane that uh, we're observing from Mars is not coming from a volcano. It's leaking right through the surface. It could be coming from an underground aquifer. It's, it, it's, a, you know, it's the environment then where you now have that information. If somebody would propose clearly a level four, for a mission and describe it in that manner, that this is the step we're going to take. I'd fund it in a minute. <laughs> I mean, as Mary uh, stated quite quite clearly, we should celebrate each and every one of those mm. steps mm-hmm. because it's making major progress along the way. It then enables the community to be solidly behind the next set of discoveries, the next set of missions needed, and enables us to describe it accurately to the public of the accomplishments that we have made and our next steps after that. It will be a big help to people like me who have the job of then translating this and putting it out to the public, which I know the two of you are also Good. heavily involved with. So Matt, I feel like you're you're tying us to the scale in a way that we start to become uncomfortable. I, I, because the I intent of this paper yeah. was to, to stimulate discussion and just to think about, and that's part of the reason that I said the lower part of the scale is making sure you measured what you think you measured. And the other is starting to think about, does it make sense? And then further up is, can you confirm it independently by some other measurement? You know, whether it's a seven point scale or six or five or four, it doesn't matter. But those are really the fundamental discussion points. That's a good point. I I mean, you know, I'm a member of the media. I want you to make it concrete for me and then I'll tell everybody that. Every time we talk about a number, I start like, no, no, we didn't want to put a number on it. Is there some way we can make colors or, you know, because again, being a scientist, 
it seems as if that becomes quantitative and people want to be, are we at 2.3 or (laughs) 2.7? And, you know, and, and it's, it's really about those fundamental, you know, again, scales tell you that you're going somewhere, there's a progression. And so we thought that was important to convey progression and to say that there are kind of levels but not to get tied up with the number. So I'm, I'm sorry if we dance a bit more than you'd like. <laughs> well, we actually give other examples in the paper too. I mean, we, yeah. we talked about oxygen. That's not in the paper. We talked about methane. That's not in the paper. Let's go to one that is in the paper. I was so thrilled in 1996 when uh, all over the media, it was announced that these tiny structures had been found yeah. inside a Martian yeah. meteorite found in Antarctica. And it looked like evidence of of long gone bacteria. I had to stop my car, get out and do a little dance by the side of the road (laughs) because we were still thinking life, not life, right? It wasn't very long before others made the argument against this conclusion that these little squiggles inside Allen Hills 84001 were microfossils. If we had had the kind of tool that you have proposed back then, That would have made a big difference, first of all, in how it was being covered. But what level do you think that announcement might have come in at on this scale that you don't want to pin down? Well, it starts with one. And then the science community has to look at, well, uh, we see these fossils, but we know that meteorite was on the surface of the Earth, which is teeming with life, as Mary said, for thousands of years. So... Was there contamination? What do we know about the rock that we picked up in Antarctica and brought back? In fact, out of the activity that we do when we go to the Antarctic and pick up um, uh, the meteorites that are there, bring back and then and then cull through them and pick out the Martian ones, this was like one of only 11 at the time that we knew of. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, it was a very early stage of, of, of being able to identify these Martian meteorites and then interrogate them. Had this meteorite come back in a sample tube that is what Perseverance is doing right now, knowing the context of it, with maybe a wonderful set of stratigraphy uh, that is displayed in the rock that we drilled, that would be a different story. Hmm. I'd also like to point out that back then we stored things a lot differently and we thought that it was okay to store things in your refrigerator. And I'm sure everybody <laughs> who's listening knows that things grow just fine in your refrigerator. Uh, Lots of unwanted things grow, particularly <laughs> the longer they sit. And so again, as, as Jim mentioned, the contamination was was really uh, a significant thing to overcome. And, and I think the people who are currently looking at meteorites Actually, I know the people who are currently looking at meteorites have have figured very clever ways to try to exclude signals from from Earth life. But the other thing I think that to me that really was sparked by that was I think it's level three where we start talking about all three and four about the non-biological possibilities that created those those signatures we right. also it also stimulated you know the the little beads of cells we started talking about mm. what is the minimum size of the cell because they were quite small smaller than anything that we knew you know so we sort of challenged started challenging it what would create it non-biologically and and is it possible biologically does it make sense that you could have everything you need in a cell 
to function in something that was that small. And I, and I will say one of the things that we noticed when we were talking about some of these examples is you can sometimes move up the scale and then do more assessment and move back down and lose ground. So it always isn't forward motion. Not a diode. It's not, it's not straight up to level seven or, or whatever right. level uh, people eventually decide on. Thank you both. This has been absolutely delightful, just as I expected. Indeed. Thank you so very much, Matt. It was just a delight to talk about these activities and, and uh, have you, you know, relay to the public some of the things that we're thinking about and how we want to communicate and get them as excited as we are because these discoveries are just unbelievable, and we just have to include everybody in on them. That's NASA's chief scientist, Jim Green, with the director of NASA's astrobiology program, Mary Wojtek. And you haven't heard the half of it, literally. Mary, Jim, and I talked for a luxurious 49 minutes in this week's episode at planetary.org radio and elsewhere. The conversation included more about the so-called cold scale they and the other authors of the Nature paper have provided as a discussion starter. You can also hear Jim reminisce about his 42 years at NASA and his plans to join the Planetary Society when he retires early in 2022. Thanks, Jim. I'll be right back with Bruce and What's Up. Hi, I'm Jason Davis, Editorial Director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink every Friday at planetary.org. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Are you looking for a place to get more space? Catch the latest space exploration news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Make sure you like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. It's Dr. Bruce Betts. Welcome again. Thank you, Matt. It is good to be here. <laughs> that reminds me of something. I can't, I can't quite place that, that vocalization. Well, that's how I do impressions. I just do a voice and then maybe it sounds like something and then I claim that that's what I was trying to do. So let me know what I did. And in the meantime, I'll tell you about the night sky. <laughs> you know what is also impressive? No. If you're, if, if you're going to be in the Southern Atlantic Ocean on December 4th, well, frankly, you're probably <laughs> there for exactly this reason to watch a total solar eclipse. You can also hang out in a portion of Antarctica and do the same thing. If you're not, if you're in the southern part of some continents down in the southern hemisphere, you may have a shot at it, like Africa and South America, for partial solar eclipse. But if not, hey, the Geminids meteor shower is coming up. That'll be peaking on December 13th and 14th. If you're in a dark sky spot, you can sometimes see over 100 meteors per hour. But this year, a gibbous moon will wash out dimmer meteors. Uh, the good news is it allowed me to say the word gibbous. He said gibbous. <laughs> <laughs>
And other cool stuff, I assume you've been checking it out, Matt. You can't miss it in the evening east, southeast. You've got three planets lined up, super bright Venus to the lower right, farthest east, and then yellowish Saturn, and then Jupiter, also looking very bright. And they will keep getting close together over the next few weeks. And the moon, loving this alignment, will be joining each of them in turn, going to Venus on the 6th, Saturn on the 7th, Jupiter on the 8th of December to visit for the upcoming holidays. Making a lovely view. It's quite a lineup. I uh, We've had some dry, clear skies down here in the San Diego area. Not the last couple of nights, been foggy, but before that, man, it was just as good as it's going to get in a busy urban area. So uh, I agree with Bruce. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. They're all bright. Saturn's the least so, but Venus and Jupiter, brightest two star-like objects up there in the night sky. On to this week in space history. It was 1972 that Apollo 17 launched. Hmm. Something I got to see from a distance on the night launch. It was uh, quite inspirational. But what else is cool, you know, is always random space fit. Who was that? It was either uh, W.C. Fields or uh, there was a walrus cartoon character when I was a kid. <laughs> And it might have been him. <laughs> Nailed it! We're going to squish some things today, Matt. Ooh. You're going to love it. If you squished it, you could fit about a thousand of the island of Hawaii inside Pluto's moon, Sharon. But wait, if you squish Sharon, a thousand Sharons, you could fit them inside the Earth. You could fit about a thousand Earths inside Jupiter, and you could fit about a thousand Jupiters inside the sun. Squishy fun. Russian nesting dolls. Of, of entire worlds. That's just great. <laughs> we move on to the trivia contest where I asked you what telescope discovered Didymos, the parent body in the binary asteroid system that uh, the DART mission will be headed to. How'd we do, Matt? Big response. I think I will go directly to Gene Lewin in Washington. You let us know if he got it right with his rhyme this week. With a 0.9-meter eye from atop Kitt Peak, they scanned the sky. On 11 April, what did they see? Didymos, 65803, spotted using CCD with suspicions of binarity. I love that. <laughs> Confer <laughs> confirmed, and DART will arrive there soon, impacting with its Diddy Moon. Wow, that was impressive and correct. Well, Gene, thank you for the poem. Not our winner, though. Our winner, get this, Darren Ritchie, up in Washington, the state of Washington, uh, he said that, uh, yep, Space Watch, 0.9 meter telescope, more about that telescope and its mirror uh, in moments. Darren has not won for over two years, and the last time he won was when he submitted Thelonious in your third order acronym creation contest. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's it's too long an acronym. We don't have time to go through everything it stands for. But what a it, he deserved to win that one. But here's one he won simply because he was chosen by Random.org. So congratulations, Darren. You are going to be getting one of those Planetary Society kick asteroid rubber asteroids. What do you got for next time? Had something a little different for you, Matt. I am a mythical creature. What am I? <laughs> but wait. I will give you one hint. I am also a category of small body objects that orbit between Jupiter and Neptune. What am I? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. 
I always knew this about you. Uh, you have until December 8th. That's Wednesday, December 8th, 8 a.m. Pacific time. And uh, once again, you have a shot at getting a Planetary Society kick asteroid, rubber asteroid. All right, everybody, go out there and look up in the night sky and think about what your favorite mythological character is and if it involves a hybrid of Matt Kaplan. Thank you and good night. <laughs> Mine does. Well, I'm glad to hear it because I know who you're thinking of. And uh, he comes from the planet Krypton, doesn't he? Exoplanet Krypton. Apparently uh, a pretty lively place. Uh, he's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. He joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who enjoy life on Earth almost every day. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.